All right. Hi, and welcome to Red Reviews, number 20, <laughs> with Justin Clark. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Corey. This is really exciting to um, to have done 20, you know, and I think we mentioned like, you know, when we did the 10th one, it's like, it'll be great when we get to the 20th one, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then we'll get to the 30th, 40th, whatever. Um, I think we'll do like a special 100th episode or whatever, and maybe we'll that wear sounds... like fun outfits or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a very busy, you know, time um, for me, for me, work-wise and other things. Um but uh, I know before we get started, I just wanted um, to say, like, I'm really thrilled with how the recent live stream we did turned out. I think it was an excellent live stream that people should check out. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had uh, uh, YouTuber uh, Anarch on and uh, some random geek and uh, a, a local member of the, the Democratic Socialists for Canada and uh, Ben Burgess, who is... A, a rising star in left media. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. He's like, you know, like, you know, if, it, if there's an A-list, he's kind of there, right? Right, right. Well, and he, and he had just done Rogan. So it was like, wow, you know, or whatever. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, but yeah, no, Ben's a good dude. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the possibility of, you know, he emailed me after our chat and he was like, hey, you want to do something? I was like, yeah, sure. So we're, you know. We're going nice. to be working something out to maybe do an episode or something, but I don't that know when awesome. that'll happen, but yeah, I think that would be very exciting. Um, but yeah, no, it's been really fun uh, doing all the different things that, you know, we've been doing and, and, you know, between this and my job and, you know, party work, you know, um, it, it, with, with the PSL, it's just, I've been so busy, but it's just so nice tonight to kind of get back to basics and to do another, <laughs> you know, uh, do another episode of Red Reviews. So for sure. Um, uh, this one is a book I've wanted to read for a very, very long time. Um, someone who I greatly admire, and this book did not disappoint. It's absolutely incredible. It is uh, Women, Race, and Class by nice. Angela Davis. Um, her classic work on uh, the sort of the history of the United States and its women's movement and its relationship to class and its relationship to race. It's right in the title. And the thing that I was not expecting was how incredibly adept she is as an historian. I never, ex I, I expected the book to be more like theory heavy than it was. It was actually more history. Okay. And which I really appreciated. There was definitely some theory in there, especially in like the last couple of chapters. But I really loved most of the book for its historical content. She does an excellent job of being able to synthesize a lot of really good historical research um, by some excellent historians, you know, people like Philip Foner and Herbert Apthecker and and um, and others alongside primary sources. So that has just been, you know, it was a joy to read. That's awesome. So, you know, if there was a through line through this book, because this book is more in many ways like a collection of essays. Okay. Um, that are kind of tied together. But if we were to tie the book together, you know, alongside just the title, is that there really is kind of like two forms of feminism, right? And we often talk about like first wave, second wave, third wave. And I'm not so much interested right, right. in that. <laughs> what I'm more interested in is sort of, you know, you know, pegging down what I think is really the crucial divide and what I think Davis thinks is the crucial divide, which is the difference between bourgeois feminists – Mm. 
and proletarian feminists Mm -hmm. and how the struggle for women's emancipation in the United States and globally really hinges on this divide and how that divide and all the contradictions that go with it often lead to the sort of, you know, two steps forward, one step back that we've seen in terms of progress for women. Right. And, you know, so she kind of, she opens the book. Her first chapter is about um, life for, um, uh, you know, black women during slavery. And she talks about how the gender roles for enslaved people were very different than the gender roles for the enslavers Mm. or for the white sort of bourgeois or genteel class. And what she argues for and sort of is saying that within enslaved people's communities, there was a certain amount of egalitarianism among men and women that did not exist in the white enslaver communities. So when she talks about that, mostly she's talking about the ways in which um, the sort of gender delineations are are less clear with the enslaved with enslaved peoples, precisely because of the dis- demand for their labor. Right. So you had there was no like distinction where like oh you know the enslaved women only worked in this and enslaved men only worked in that, and that's not really true. Okay. Um, enslaved women did work in the fields as much as they maybe worked in the homes. Um, and so, you know, it kind of leads us to thinking about, um, you know, the, the fact that this, that the work that enslaved black women were required to do, were compelled to do, forced to do under the slavery system, um, sort of provided them this weird, but I think ample opportunity to develop themselves in a way that white women could not develop themselves within the system. Like I'm saying, I'm not saying like slavery is good. What right. I'm saying <laughs> is that what I'm saying is that because the sort of the gender differences were flattened mm-hmm. in the system of slavery, it sort of killed some of the, it, 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 it rooted out some of the distinctions that would have happened within white culture, especially in mm-hmm. mid to late, you know, in the 19th century culture where the development of the housewife or the development of like the, the, the woman as gentle, you know, a submissive person is something that really comes to the fore in like Britain and in America. Um, so uh, let me see if I can. So she talks about how like, you know, how. Um, but that's not to say that they didn't face real challenges. Right. So one of the ways right. that they were severely challenged was not just the physical abuse that they experienced, but the sexual abuse that they experienced. Right. And the ways in which, you know, um you know, sexual abuse or, you know, or those kinds of things um, were used not just as a way to keep the sort of um, enslaved population in in line in terms of understanding the power dynamic between the enslaved and the enslavers, but also it kept in line the way that enslaved women were perceived so you, this is where you get the trope of the uh, black woman as promiscuous or the black man oh, okay. as promiscuous. These come from these tropes because uh, this is the, the sort of ideological justification that enslavers would give 
for their heinous acts of sexual violence was, well, you know, they're, you know, they are promiscuous anyway or whatever. And in many ways, what this did was it sort of negated the enslaved's very humanity. And and in doing so, negated not just their humanity, but negated their sense of of, uh, womanhood because their their womanhood was sort of ripped from them um, by these systems of coercion. Um, and so I'm trying to find a passage, you know, yeah, as she says here, she's like required by the master's demands to be as masculine in the performance of their work as their men. Black women must have been profoundly affected by their experiences during slavery. Some, no doubt, were broken and destroyed, yet the majority survived and in the process acquired qualities considered taboo by the 19th century ideology of man, of, of womanhood. Mm. And so, you know, they had a certain level of like independence and a certain level of like separateness and that they would have that and sort of um, that they would that, that white women would not really like consider a thing that they would that they would sort of fight for until you get like decades later. Right. Right. Um, but that's not to say that, that there weren't some white women who were clearly like on the uh, sort of at the vanguard of this movement starting in like the, you know, the, the 18th century. But, but yeah, so that, that's kind of the first chapter. I thought it was really interesting because like um, she does an excellent job of, again, synthesizing a lot of really good historical work that has been done by previous historians alongside her own use of primary sources, you know, and enslaved people's accounts and, and accounts of of the enslavers and the kind of the way that they viewed men and women. Because there's this kind of like, I think there's like this like cliche um, within, you know, like popular culture when we talk about slavery that like, you know, slave women only kind of really worked in the houses and the men worked on the yeah, fields. And yeah. like, that's not really true. That's like the women, pop culture version yeah. of the things. Right. Whereas, um, you know, black women worked just as hard as men on the fields. And sometimes they even did it when they were pregnant. Um, because uh, the sort of the, the notion that, um, that, oh, well, they're carrying, they're with child. Therefore, we shouldn't have them be working as hard. That didn't really <laughs> matter to them. Right, right. right. Because Slave the ones who, didn't give a shit, right? <laughs> the, enslave, the enslavers didn't care. Yeah. And so... Their their whole thing was well I just see them as nothing more than quote unquote breeders that like if they die who gives a fuck like as long as the the the, the child they're carrying is healthy I don't give a shit right right and so you know literally livestock is what literally uh, livestock they were treated very much as livestock and and so that kind of that kind of um, really peppers how the women's rights movement kind of grows in America is. That there's always this intersection between, in her title, women, race, and class, and how those things interact with one another, and how the women's movement is always hampered by notions of, of class and notions of race. And the one thing that I learned from the book that's also interesting for me in, in later chapters is the extent to which the anti-slavery movement was a huge component to the women's rights movement, especially pre-Civil War era. So you have mm. you know, the development of women's uh, rights societies, and you have activists like the Grimke sisters, uh, Sarah and Angelina Grimke. You have people like early on, like in the 18th century, somebody like Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley writing um, 
you know, vindication of the rights of women. And then you have uh, other early women's rights pioneers uh, like Lucretia Mott and so on and so forth. And that the through line through all of them was not only were they fighting for the emancipation of women, they were fighting for the emancipation of, of the enslaved. Mm-hmm. That there was a strong connection between um, the abolitionist movement as it was developing and the women's rights movement as it was developing. So that's okay. on one side. And then the other coin of that is the is the impact and influence of Frederick Douglass, um, who we've covered in a previous episode when yeah. we did his book, Narrative of the Life. Uh, Douglas, of course, was one of the very early women's rights supporters and understood the struggle that went together, right? And so as an abolitionist, his idea was to combine the movements um, and to acknowledge how important the emancipation of women was to the emancipation of the slaves because they went hand in hand. Uh, she's also like, she also talks about obviously like if you think of a book like Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. The classic, you know, American novel that sort of was one of the the big sort of cultural touchstones that sort of maybe tipped off the Civil War. Well, one of the things about that book that's interesting is that it is imbued with the same kind of uh, gender and, and class politics of a lot of the sort of middle class white women of the time. Right. Right. And so it kind of paints the 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 sort of the 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 black the black characters the enslaved characters in the novels is these sort of like archetypes of like you know obedient or submissive you know black people who you know are you know are like deeply deeply moral but then like also deeply subjugated by white people (laughs) and 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 so it has all of the problems with it that any novel written by a sort of middle-class white woman in the 19th century would have right right yeah that makes Um, sense (laughs) So, and so the thing that the other kind of big revelation that's important that came from the book is the extent to which the women's rights movement in America was deeply racist, Mm. which is something that a lot of people don't pick up on because the way that we often lionize the kind of heroes, especially of like the women's suffrage movement. So people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Susan B. Anthony, um, that these women were racists um, and that they explicitly isolated black women from their movement in an attempt to placate the white Southern sort of middle-class women who were a part of the women's suffrage movement. Right. And one of the arguments that the women's suffrage movement used was that it's important for us as white women to get the vote before black men. So if you think about during the 1860s, um, you have post-Civil War, you have what are called the Civil War Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Right. 13th Amendment abolishes slavery – Although put a huge fucking asterisk next to that because it doesn't yeah. talk count prison labor, right? Right. We can and then uh, and that is we a book that goes into that in more detail is a classic book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. If yeah. you want to learn more about that, um, and the and the documentary Thirteenth, which I think is on Netflix, the Ava yep. DuVernay film, excellent documentary goes into that the complications of Thirteenth Amendment, if the Fourteenth Amendment, which is um, the uh, I think it's the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, um, I think the 14th one is basically um, like naturalization. And then the 15th Amendment is um, the the suffrage amendment for black for black men. OK, um, so everybody knew that 
with the 15th Amendment, like the extension of suffrage was a huge battle. And you had divides within the women's rights movement, the women's suffrage movement about how to go forward. So there were those like Frederick Douglass, who believed that the passage of the 15th Amendment was essential. And the reason he believed that was because that would be the stepping stone to getting to women's the women's right to vote. Because if we can get this, we can get that. And we can make an argument that if we extend suffrage to these people, we should extend suffrage to to these people, these other people. Mm -hmm. That was the sort of, but that argument ultimately gets shut down. And the argument that ultimately wins is the one that's backed by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and other high leaders within the women's suffrage movement. Many of whom, of course, remember they're white, they're in their middle class. These are women who come from either like super established wealth, like in the case of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, or they come from like, you know, like solid middle class backgrounds. These people are, are th- these women, they're like society women. The, you know, the suffrage movement is, is made up of society women who, because they didn't have to work, they needed something to do. And this was their, their thing to do. And again, mm-hmm. I think that's a noble thing. I don't want to discount that, but yep. I'm just saying like that's that's the class dynamic, right? Yeah. Because not only were black women largely excluded from the women's suffrage movement early on, but working class women were largely isolated from the women's suffrage movement early on, especially like, you know, like women, uh, especially like immigrants, um, you know, women immigrants who are, who maybe worked in the textile mills in Lowell, Massachusetts yeah. or and so on and so forth, you know. For sure. So working women were often excluded from this movement too. And there was always this kind of implicit notion that with women's suffrage, that it would really only be for white, the white moneyed classes of women would be able to vote. Not black women, not working women, so on. Now, here's the interesting, here's where it gets really screwy, right? The story that I think is really fascinating is the one that goes into the fact that there was a congressman uh, who was a virulent racist who um, basically saw the women's rights movement. He was a Democrat back when Democrats were like, you know, well, you can make the argument about this today, but like (laughs) back when Democrats were like, you know, KKK and virulently racist and Southerners and whatever. Right. Right. But there was a congressman sides. (laughs) Right. But there was a congressman and I think his name was James Brooks. Um, but there was this congressman who essentially like used women's suffrage as a wedge issue to stop the 15th Amendment, to sort of stop black male suffrage, because he sort of saw like, why on earth would we give the black man the vote before white women? Like, it's absurd. And the argument that, of course, they they go upon like, you know, the, the sort of typical racist tropes of like that they're of uneducated, course. they're unpropertied, what on, so on and so forth. From, from, from my perspective in, in 2022, this just looks like misogyny versus racism. Who wins? Like, right. nobody. <laughs> like. Exactly. Exactly right. And so the thing that's like so important um, for – uh, this whole moment is that th- this congressman, this like racist white supremacist congressman, um, uh, ends up actually kind of bankrolling parts of the women's suffrage movement. Interesting. And goes on a national speaking tour with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And he helps set up a newspaper for them, basically articulating their pro white women's suffrage, white supremacist views. Um, <laughs> and so like, yeah, white so supremacy, they, I guess, is the one that they 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 think is more important, right? 
Exactly. Exactly. And so, and Susan B. Anthony pretty much saw themselves as sort of trying to sort of purge the, the women's suffrage movement of unsavory elements that would alienate them from the South. Um, so, you know, and so they, they wanted these sort of white South, uh, white Southern women as a part of the movement. And the way to do that was to basically say, black woman, you can't be a part of this. And working class women, you can't be a part of this. Right. Um, like there's a quote. Yeah, this is, I believe this quote is at the, on the, the start of chapter four. It's racism in the women's suffrage movement, the chapter four. This is a long extended quote from Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but I'm only going to read like the last part of it. Right. And it's her talking about the 15th Amendment. She also uses like racial slurs and stereotypes to describe black men. So like not great. Um, ones I'm not going to say. Um, so uh, she says, you know, quote unquote, this is the Negro's hour. Are we sure that he once entrenched in all his inalienable rights may not be an added power to hold us at bay? Have not black male citizens been heard to say they doubted the wisdom of extending the right of suffrage to women? Why should the African prove more just and generous than his Saxon compeers? If the two millions of Southern black women are not to be secured the rights of person, property, wages, and children, their emancipation is but another form of slavery. In fact, it is better to be the slave of an educated white man than a degraded, ignorant black one. And so that's like, so that's from Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, so, you know, again, I think what's really important here, and this is from her history of women's suffrage book that she, she wrote with Susan B. Anthony and, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Um, but this led to real, like, I mean, this led to like real divisions within the women's suffrage movement um, where, you know, organizations decided to break off. Um, black women set up their own organizations um, to fight for women's suffrage because they were so alienated from the broader women's suffrage movement or the white women's suffrage movement. Stanton's ind indignation, this is from historian Eleanor Flexer, Stanton's indignation and that of Miss Anthony, Susan B. Anthony, knew no bounds. The latter, meaning Susan B. Anthony, made the pledge that I will cut this right arm of, uh, of mine before I will ever work for or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Uh, Mrs. Stanton made derogatory references to a racial slur and mm. the enfranchisement of Africans, Chinese, and all the ignorant quote unquote, foreigners that foment that the moment they touch our shores. She warned that the Republicans advocacy of manhood suffrage creates an antagonism between black men and all women that will culminate in fearful outrages on womanhood, especially in the Southern states. The especially in the Southern states part is super important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's just so important to understand that like, you know, like Susan B. Anthony is on currency in the United States. Like she's right. on her own dollar, right? Uh, Elizabeth uh, or Susan B. Anthony is on money. Susan and Elizabeth Cady Stanton is held up by free thinkers in the atheist movement as being like this, like champion of liberal reform and who, and Stanton herself was alienated from the women's suffrage movement for writing books uh, right. that were critical of Christianity and so on. So she's kind of held up as this leader, but it turns out that both of them were like, hardcore racists who yeah. who uh believed in the sort of like higher and lower civilization bullshit so and and so ultimately what happens is that the women's suffrage movement happens but it happens really without the, the support um or, or it happens like obviously black women and working class women of all races and backgrounds like they all fight for women's suffrage but they're never written in the history books. Like their story often gets left out. And so what Davis is doing in this book is sort of reasserting 
their relevance to this movement, whether it's right. the African-American Women's Clubs movement, which she devotes a chapter to, and right. its support of not just suffrage, but to fight against lynching, which became a huge problem um, post-Civil War, where thousands of, of, um, of uh, black people were killed by racist mobs, both yeah. men and women. Um, there's a horrific story of I think this happened in like Texas where there was a lynching where they beat this person to death, shoved them in a barrel filled with nails and rolled them down a hill. I mean, just brutal, brutal shit, right? And the sort of national conscience on the issue of lynching was a woman named um, Ida B. Wells Barnett. And Ida B. Wells was a um, was a uh, was a black woman who 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 had really incredible militant journalism. She wrote numerous books on the issue of lynching. And again, the women's movement, again, sort of tries to sort of downplay the issues of lynching in service of like women's suffrage rather than fighting for making the world a little bit of a better place. And, you know, and to this day, the United States does not have a federal anti-lynching law. Um, the, there was debate and discussion of the passage of a federal anti-lynching law a couple of years ago with the horrific murder of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, yeah. but that was killed in the Senate, uh, mostly by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. So the South strikes again in terms of, you know, holding this country back from any sort of justice or any sort of progress. Yeah. Um, and not like the Southern people, but the Southern politicians and their bourgeois supporters. Yeah. Um, so I um, let me see what else I want to mention here. Uh, meaning of it. So like, I think the other thing too is like the importance of education. So she has a chapter devoted to education and liberation. She talks about how there were you know school teachers um, as early as like the early 1800s who would set up these these um, uh, uh, schools that were open to both black and white students, and that they were kind of shut down by local authorities. Of course, this happens in like New England. <laughs> I think this is like in Massachusetts or whatever. Um, but how education became such a crucial component to the struggle, mm. because and how during you know Reconstruction, uh, for those who don't know, so the period of like 1865 to about like you know like 1877 in this country in the United States is called reconstruction it's this period of time where the federal government uses its extensive resources both militarily and financially and politically to essentially reset the slate um, so this is where you get the establishment of what are called Freedmen's Bureaus, um, which are these uh, agencies which are to that were developed to set up some forms of like equity, whether it be in education, um, housing, um, or uh, uh, em- uh, employment, so on and so forth. Yeah. And during Reconstruction, education became a crucial component where you had the Freedmen schools. Um, and a lot of times, these were the first public schools in America um, that were free for people to go to and for both black and white students. So imagine, you know, in the 1860s and 70s, they were desegregated, you know, uh, right. grade schools <laughs> in the United States. Um, and they're all ended by Hayes's, they call it Hayes's betrayal. Um, Rutherford B. Hayes, who was, um, who became president in 1877, his election was extremely contentious. Um, he actually didn't, I think he didn't win the popular vote, but he won the electoral vote, um, against the Democrat. It was a guy named Samuel Tilden. And basically it, it broke down to, um, a close political ally of his, um, 
sort of wanted to be a high up in his cabinet. So they made sort of a deal. And so everybody sort of thought of it as being a deal. Okay. Very much akin to how John Quincy Adams became president and Henry Clay wanted to be a secretary of state. It's kind of the same thing. Right. And so Hayes becomes president. And the reason, the big reason he wins the electoral vote is he says, I will end the reconstruction and I will let the South do what it wants to do. And so when reconstruction ends, you have the reassertion of Southern dominance. Uh, over black people in this country, in the United States, first with what are called the black codes and which eventually get formalized in what we today call Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there were many organizations um, who were fighting against this and the education of people, uh, especially of, you know, black people in this country, not only by them, you know, not only education for themselves, but the ways in which others try to help them, um, I think was, you know, I think it was a, a huge critical moment. Um, but yeah, so um, she has a really fun chapter that's interesting called Communist Women, where she she tells the history of these very influential female communists. So she talks about, um, you know, somebody like uh, Lucy Parsons, um, who, you know, she was, you know, very influential in the sort of Haymarket riots um, that happened uh you know, and she was involved with the Labor Party and all these people sort of went from being like liberals to anarchists to communists. They kind of they basically they, they were they were kind of they moved across the map. So, you know, so she have that you have Mother Bloor, um, who is sort of like a Mother Jones type who she hitchhiked, she hitchhiked across the country to um, different strikes and fought for the labor movement. Um, you have Anita Whitney, who um she she ran i think she was like a part of like the california communist party and she ran the california communist party um you have uh elizabeth Gurley flynn who a lot of anarchists kind of celebrate and kind of a big figure um she was and she was a big part of the social and communist movement for over 60 years um you know she she was a part of the iww with big bill haywood the industrial workers of the world um, and, uh, you know, she, she agitated for labor rights among native American leaders. Um, and then of course she joins the communist party in the 1930s. And then the last one she talks about is Claudia Jones, who, um, uh, was, uh, a very influential African-American female communist leader in the United States. Um, and, uh, I will, uh, I'll read you a, a section in this chapter that she says about Claudia Jones. Davis writes, Claudia Jones was very much a communist, a dedicated communist who believed that socialism held the only promise of liberation for black women, for black people as a whole, and indeed the multi, for the multiracial working class. Thus, her criticism was motivated by the constructed desire to see her white co-workers and comrades to purge themselves of racist and sexist attitudes. So it's this universal project, right? They, yeah. they sort of saw the anti-racist work they were doing as part and parcel with their work they were doing to, to, to create socialism. It's, it's such a distinct difference between, uh, uh, like black emancipation groups or native indigenous or, or indigenous emancipation groups. Like these, like non-white groups always are more universal than white groups. Yes. Like, right. <laughs> it's always the white people that are like, Nah, just us. Just us. Get, we get to be good. Right, right. And we even see this, unfortunately, within some sectors of what passes at the left. 
And, uh, and you're, you're totally right. And I think this gets to, you know, what I talked about in the, in the, the live stream, but you know, so the idea of from the late great Michael Brooks, you know, who said the idea of a cosmopolitan socialism. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that was this sort of broad universal project that was people learned from one another. There was a universalism to it. Um, and that human universals are applicable. They are realizable. We talked a little bit about that with Sartre last time. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, the communist movement was always at the forefront of anti-racist politics. Um, so for example, like in the 1930s, when, you know, Earl Browder was running under the Communist Party ticket in 36 with John W. Ford. John W. Ford was a, um, was a, uh, a black man from Alabama who was a labor organizer. Um, and, you know, basically like rose from nothing. His, you know, parents were slaves and, and was able to become the, you know, the first, you know, African American on a major party ticket for vice president in, in right. American history, you know, decades before Davis herself would do it. Because Angela Davis ran for vice president, I think, in 1980 on the American Communist Party ticket with Gus Hall. Um, and so, uh, which is why it was always striking to me when people had always talked about like the importance of Kamala Harris. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. But like, <laughs> if you really want to talk about like who was really a trailblazer in that, it was Angela Davis and it was right. four decades before. Um, with the American Communist Party, but apparently they don't count the American Communist Party as a major party. Although at one time it almost had a million members, but you know, whatever. Um, so, so yeah, so there's that. And then the last three chapters of the book are kind of the most theoretical. Okay. Um, but of course they have incredible, you know, historical material in them as well. Um, the chapter 11, and uh, for those who are still listening, if you're listening to the live stream or you're listening to the recording, I just want to enter a content note right now that we are going to be discussing rape. Um, and so, or do I need to say like the R word, Corey, or what's the procedure for this in terms uh, of the live stream? I think that, yeah, well, I think for, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's probably good. Like, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, the chapter, um, the chapter 11 in the book deals with the myth of what is called the quote unquote, the myth of the black rapist. So there's this idea in popular culture and historical research, and even in some, uh, and even some well-respected research on rape by scholars such as Susan Brown Miller of the myth of this black race rapist, you know, this idea of the, the, the black man is this, this insatiable sexual desire and he's defiling white women and that this was a justification for lynching, which often right. happened. And so uh, what Davis does in this chapter, she sort of breaks down bit by bit why this is wrong and about how, in fact, if anything, it was the other way around where you had uh, huge amounts of white men actually raping black women, not just in slavery, but after it as a means of not just sort of sexual gratification, but also as a means of power. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and so it, it's it's pretty harrowing stuff, but she really does go into, I think, um, you know, really just breaking down these myths and even myths written by, you know, people who um, like she kind of talks about Susan Brown Miller's book on her scholarship on rape, which is kind of like she like Susan Brown Miller wrote one of like the first big historical sociological studies on rape in the 1970s. Okay. And, but there are parts of what she says 
where she sort of says like Susan Brown Miller's discussion on rape and race and Vince's an unthinking partisanship, which borders on racism In pretending to defend the cause of all women. She sometimes boxes herself into the position of defending the particular cause of white women, regardless of its implications. Mm. And so, um, and then this kind of gets into what I was saying earlier. She Davis writes, although white men who are employers, executives, politicians, doctors, professors, etc., have been known to quote unquote take advantage of women they consider their social inferiors, their sexual misdeeds seldom come to light in court. It is not therefore quite probable that these men of the capitalist and middle classes account for a significant proportion of the unreported rapes. So, like this is, I think this gets to the heart of how. This myth of the black rapist is this idea to sort of justify not just violence against black men, but also violence against black women. Because one of the arguments he talks about is how because of the sort of presumed or the sort of perceived quote unquote promiscuity of black men, that it sort of bleeds into thinking that there's a promiscuity among black women and that black women are also sort of sexually unhinged and so on and so forth. And so when a white man rapes a black woman, oh, well, it's not that big a deal because she, you know, probably quote unquote wanted it anyway. Like it's this kind of horrible, right, disgusting right. stuff. But I think it's important because I think it lays out how these tropes have have um in these myths some that are even upheld by quote unquote liberals or or you know people who consider themselves progressives um do un unmitigated damage to um uh to and violence to black men and to black women in the form of lynching in the form of 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 uh, uh in the form of of rapes and in the form of other uh, other forms of sexual or or just physical violence so um so I think that chapter is – it's pretty harrowing stuff, but I think it's very important because yeah. these myths are so pervasive and sometimes we don't even think about thinking about them, right? Like, yeah. you know, and so it's like you have to catch yourself and go like, wait a minute. Am I falling for the same kind of racist tropes that justified lynching? Right, right. And, 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 or justified the rape of black women? Like you have to think about those things. So that's really, really important. Um the second well, to last chapter. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, uh, not to, not to make excuses for them because it's been proven in court and and it's been proven that they are victimizers, uh, like Bill uh, Bill Cosby or uh, uh, what was the the singer uh, uh, R. R. Kelly. Kelly. Like right, there's a reason that we saw those and they made there were huge publicity around them versus uh, say. Uh, the public, like, I can't even think of an example of a white rapist, like, that had that much publicity around them because, but there's right. almost certainly exist, right? Like, the big right. names. So. Exactly. And, and the few that do come to mind are often ones because they are so atrocious. I mean, we often think of allegedly, uh, somebody like Jeffrey Epstein, right? Right, right. Um, but, but it, the point that you just made is so crucial that in fact, Frederick Douglass also made the same point back in 1894. <laughs> and Davis quotes her in the book, quotes him in the book. He, he says, quote unquote, I do not pretend that Negroes are saints and angels. I do not deny that they are capable of committing the crime imputed to them, but utterly deny that they are any more addicted to the commission of that crime than is true of any other variety of the human family. I yeah. am not a defender of, of any man guilty of this atrocious crime, but I am a defender of the colored people as a class. So like that's getting back to what he's saying here, which is that again, people do do bad things. There are cases in history where, you know, a black man may have raped a white woman and that's, totally inexcusable 
But what's important here is that those cases aren't any more uh, pervasive than, say, a, a white man raping a black woman or a yep. or a white man raping a white woman, right? Like these happen because of you know the 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 sort of structure of society, and then you know some forms of. I don't want to get too much into like the human nature argument thing, but like, well, I, you know, but yeah, like this idea. But it's so important for us to distinguish that like these that humans are capable of these heinous crimes, and it's regardless of race. But to single people yeah. out. Because of their race for these particular crimes is 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 inexcusable, yeah, and indefensible. To, and to imagine that, uh, uh, like such a like you say, like to imagine that it is more prevalent for uh, black men to commit this crime than white men. That's just racist, right? Like, it's yes, just, <laughs> it's racist, and it's not backed up by any empirical right. evidence. It's just not true. Yeah. Um. So, but it's a myth that has been continually carried out. Um, to not just maintain white supremacy, but to maintain some kind of of patriarchy as well. Right. Um, it's a way of to maintain the sort of white cis hetero dominance within you know capitalist societies. And I mean, not to get too like too far afield, but it also yeah. upholds like the rape culture and patriarchy because uh, it keeps the image of the scary ma- black man in the shadows yes. as the rapist and not the guy who took you on a date, right? Exactly, exactly. Or it reinforces the, the the black woman who is, oh, well, she's promiscuous anyway. She was, quote, unquote, asking for it. Right, These kinds right. of awful, disgusting tropes um, that um, are, you're right, they're absolutely in the service of white supremacy, but they're also in the service of patriarchy. Yeah. And it's our goal as sort of radicals, progressive, socialist, whatever, communists, anarchists to acknowledge that these myths are pervasive and real yeah but that the but that the truth is more important than the myth and to expose the myth for what it is which is a lie yep so the last two chapters are um also pretty interesting chapter 12 is about women's reproductive rights and the ways in which sort of the white women's rights movement and made up of mostly white middle-class women also continues to have racist connotations, um, specifically in regards to reproductive rights. So she does go into the pretty unsavory history of Margaret Sanger, which is something that like right, the right wing uses against um, abortion activists and Planned Parenthood all the time, because she's kind of one of the founders of Planned Parenthood. So so early on, Margaret Sanger was a socialist. She identified as a socialist. Um, she also identified as like a free thinker. Um, a lot of free thought groups and atheist groups often hold her up as being kind of a hero for, you know, because she was a secular person or whatever. But I would not do that at all because she, this woman was a virulent racist and eugenicist. So there's really like, so Davis breaks down how there's basically like two phases to her career. The first phase is what people love to focus on, which is like her being a socialist, wanting to fight for more egalitarian world, fighting for fam- you know, fighting for reproductive health. That's where the good stuff came out of. All the good stuff. <laughs> and then there's the second phase where she she kind of wanted to go big time. She re- she recognized that if she was to stay in the socialist movement exclusively um, and fight for a more egalitarian form of like birth control, which is a term I think she I think she came up with. Um, that her, her 
her opinions or her view of the world or what she's or what she her, what she, her advocacy work would be sort of relegated to the margins and so she wanted to kind of become mainstream and the way that she became mainstream was becoming a white supremacist and eugenicist so she um, started to court um, the support of virulent genes- eugenicists um, and her whole worldview kind of shifted to um, supporting uh, that kind of, you know, horrible, uh, you know, kind of thing. When Margaret Sanger severed her ties with the Socialist Party for the purpose of building an independent birth control campaign, she and her followers became more susceptible than ever before to the anti-black and anti-immigrant propaganda of the times. Um, and she she said, like, you know, by 1919, the eugenic influence on the birth control movement was unmistakably clear. An article that she wrote for the American Birth Control League Journal, she defined the chief issue of birth control as more children from the fit, less from the unfit. Um, Yikes. Uh, and then she wrote a letter to um, the – let me see. So like – so not only was it like birth control like an issue, but the issue of sterilization was also important. So this is right. where you get the emergence of sterilization laws where people who were deemed unfit by medical professionals within the state – a mass sterilized people, including um, people who were mentally or dis- or physically disabled, and yeah. then obviously just huge huge amounts of um, black people. I mean, they just full blown uh, they full blown made people sterile um, just because they were black, um, and uh, and so yeah. so uh, so she actually wrote this. She's like, we do not want to get out. She wrote to a colleague, Mark, meaning Margaret Sanger wrote to a colleague. We do not want to get the word out that we want to exterminate the Negro population and the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs in any of the more rebellious members. So like they were trying to leverage their connections to the black clergy to sort of push their their birth control agenda. What the real motive was to have black people have less kids. Like that was really the goal was like we don't you know we want less black people because we see them as inferior right and we're going to leverage like black ministers to do that by basically lying to them about their true intentions um and this stuff would have very you know real world implications so for example um like you know at so in 1972 16,000 women and 8,000 men had been sterilized under the auspices of federal programs. That's just in 1972. Um, so Carl Schultz, director of, of housing, education, health, education, and welfare, which that's what the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services used to be one, and it used to be uh, HEW or HUE. Okay. So Carl Schultz, director of HUE's Population Affairs Office, estimated that between 100,000 and 200,000 sterilizations had actually been funded that year by the federal government. That's 1972. During Hitler's Germany, incidentally, 250,000 sterilizations were carried out under Nazi's hereditary health law. Is it possible that the record of the Nazis throughout the years of their reign may have been almost equaled by U.S. government-funded sterilizations in the space of a single year? So this gets to the heart of what's really going on here. And I'm going to end that chapter with talking about a, a really terrific, a really horrific story of two young black girls who were the Ralph sisters, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph. Um, uh, Minnie Lee was 12 and Mary Alice was 14. And they were both 
sterilized without with sort of without their consent the the government the the local government had taken advantage of the Montgomery Community Action Committee had taken um no sorry I said this wrong so like these birth control they took advantage of the fact that their mother was illiterate and so they they she they had taken a sort of um a birth prevention uh, measure called depo provera well in tests this had been caught to cause cancer in test animals. So, so they wanted to sterilize these girls so that they couldn't pass on whatever they had gotten from this drug to whatever children they may have had. But that was not what they told their, their, their mother. What they told their mother was, we're going to do a procedure to protect them from whatever effects from this Depo Provera was. But what they actually ended up doing was sterilizing these two young girls who hadn't fully even entered puberty yet. So like, you know, so it's, it's pretty disgusting. Like, um, just in North Carolina alone, um, uh, under the auspices of the Eugenics Commission of North Carolina, which was an official government office, by the way, uh, 7,686 sterilizations have been carried out since 1933, although the operations were justified as measures to prevent the reproduction of mentally deficient persons, quote unquote, about 5,000 of the sterilized persons have been black. So well over 50%, close to two thirds of the sterilizations that had happened in North Carolina since 1933 had been black people. Because when you're racist, you can just justify to yourself that this is, these are the people that are mentally deficient, I guess. Exactly. Right. And this gets to the heart of the, the, the whole book, which is that there are these elements of what we would think of as progressive reform, whether it be the abolitionist movement, the women's rights movement, women's suffrage, the, the reproductive rights, and so on and so forth. Because Angela Davis makes a point in this chapter of saying that like, what, you know, white women don't understand why black women might be reluctant to join the abortion like rights movement. Now, this right. is the 70s. I think it's probably a little bit different today. You know, yeah. it's 50 years ago or whatever when Roe was passed or Roe was, was the decision of Roe v. Wade. But like, but like black women might be a little apprehensive about being involved in a movement regarding birth control when it's all middle-class white people because middle-class white women are the ones who sterilize them, for, yeah. forcibly sterilize them. So like these are the things that I think are very, very important. She sort of advocates for not only should we have abortion rights, clearly, but we should also end forced sterilizations because those two issues go hand in hand. And I had never really, art- I had never read anybody who kind of articulated those two things together. Although they are, they, once I read that, I was like, this is so obvious that these two things go together. Right. But I never read anybody who really put them together before. Um, and so, so yeah. And so the final chapter is one that I remember talking about with somebody in a book group when we were discussing Marx's Capital. And she had brought this up because she was reading the book. The last one is about sort of the, uh, the growing obsolescence of housework. And about how there's a movement, there was a movement growing in the 1970s for women to be paid for housework. Okay. And Angela Davis makes the argument that that's a bad idea for a number of reasons. One, exploitation. Women's work. (laughs) First off, housework isn't women's work for one, right? And in fact, she talks about how during the colonial, colonial era in America, you know, the housework was, was pretty, pretty uh, intense. Quite right. a bit of drudgery, you know, because women had to, you know, they had to make the food, they had to make the clothes, they had to make the soap, they had to make the, they had to do everything, right? They had it's to do the cleaning, they had to do the cooking. And she also talked about some, uh, an indigenous community who also the women not only like did all that, but they also made the houses. So like they built the houses. Um, and so, you know, the reason that she argues that, hey, maybe we shouldn't, 
we shouldn't just pay people to do housework is that that's kind of a it's kind of a band-aid on a hemorrhage because mm. it doesn't really get to the root of the problem, which is exploitation. Yeah. You know, women, you know, it's considered women's work, it's considered inferior work, despite the fact that um, you know, uh men and women can both perform this work. And if you were to try to and the thing is is that she kind of said clearly the women who are interested in sort of being paid for housework have never met domestic workers um because domestic like domestic workers will be harmed by this because these people do make a living from cleaning homes right and that if you guarantee some kind of wage to housework that kind of sort of drops the bottom out from the 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 women who are women or men who are employed by that so she kind of talks about how you know like, because she talks about how, like, this this solution is not enough. Essentially, what she argues for is that we don't need to just give women a wage for doing housework. What we need to do is establish socialism. So, like, her whole thing is, like, <laughs> right. what she says in the end of the book, she says, what is needed, of course, are new social institutions to assume a good portion of the housewife's old duties. This is a challenge emanating from the swelling ranks of women in the working class. The demand for universal and subsidized childcare is a direct consequence of the rising number of working mothers. The only significant steps towards ending domestic slavery have in fact been taken in the existing socialist countries. Working women, therefore, have a special and vital interest in the struggle for socialism. So this goes back to, you know, writing of like Marx and Engels, right? So... You know, Engels wrote a really famous book called The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, where he talks about how before the advent of private property, you know, communal societies were largely far more egalitarian than the systems we live under today, where right. in some you even had matriarchal societies where where women were the, the primary decision makers, and then you had a certain balance between men and women that does not exist um, today. And the reason it exists today is because of the development of the surplus and that the development of the surplus led to the matriarchal system, that men were the ones who got to control the surplus. And then that, of course, develops into feudalism and then into capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly, like the traditional, the quote unquote, traditional gender roles that people think of, like in terms of the housewife, <laughs> like the American housewife was largely a product of something that happened about 120 years ago. It's yeah, not something that's, that's not, been around yeah. forever. It's not humanity like this. Right. But this like idea that there's like a men's sphere and there's a woman's sphere, like that's an extremely modern phenomenon in the span of like human history, which is funny because people call it like traditional gender roles. I'm like, they're not actually that traditional, like to be honest, right. like they're just not. <laughs> um, so, you know, so what she argues for is like, you know, yeah, we could pay people a wage, but that doesn't help the problem of exploitation. That doesn't help the problem of alienation, that women will still feel unhappy in these positions. Like even if you pay them, they're still going to be fucking depressed because instead of living and fulfilling their own desires and joys and what they want to do with their lives for real, they have to fucking clean and shit, they're right? They're forced into this other role. They're forced <laughs> into this other role, right? Um, and so like they're not living up to their full potential either. Um, or what they want to do with their lives. Yeah. Um, and it also reinforces the patriarchy, right? Because if you just pay women for housework, then people will just assume, as you said earlier, it's women's work, right? right. And that men go off and, and, and it, and it, and it justifies a lower wage for domestic work. Yep. Yep. Because the women who are going to get paid a wage to do housework are obviously going to get paid less because they're not the primary breadwinner. Yeah. Right? And the men are going to go out and make the real money. 
the men are going to go out and make the quote-unquote real money, right? So not only is this bad for housewives, but it's also bad, like I said earlier, for domestic workers because it's going to push their wages down too. Because now you're going to have a huge glut of people in the labor force. The other thing too is that, you know, um, as Davis argues, like in the classical like Marxist sense or like in the traditional way in which capitalism has been developed, there's been a very clear delineation between like, Work that is done for a wage and work that is done in the process of social reproduction, which is what housework is considered. Right. You know, and so do we really want to monetize that? Because if we do, it opens it up to the same levels, like I said, of exploitation and alienation that would happen under wage work. Though I'm not surprised that capitalist society would want to monetize that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And here's the thing, right? If you think, cause the, 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 the wages for housework movement was started in Italy in the late, in the early 1970s. Again, probably with very, very good intentions. It's very similar to the UBI movement, right? Right. Like UBI is a great idea. Like, don't get me wrong. I think UBI is awesome. The problem is, is that the way that people want to implement at UBI is terrible because yeah. if we implemented UBI or universal basic income, the way that Andrew Yang wants to do it. It's not going to be universal. <laughs> and it's not going to be really particularly universal. Not to mention the fact that like his proposal, which again, like this, like again, if they, if, if a capitalist government was going to institute like wages for housework, the way they would do it is through sales taxes. Yeah. Which means that sales taxes would go through the roof because that's how Andrew Yang wants to pay for his UBI was he wanted to do it through sales taxes, which is an extremely regressive tax, which affects more of the poor because this is going to sound crazy and like kind of counterintuitive, but it's true. Poor people spend more of their money than rich people do. Yep. Yep. And so poor people pay more like sales tax generally as a whole than rich people do. Well, because yeah, the things that rich people buy don't aren't usually applicable for sales taxes. The same right. Like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. So for example, like rich people, you know why rich people buy a lot of art? The reason they money buy a laundering. lot of art, it's, mo- it's a money laundering scheme <laughs> because that money would be taxed otherwise. If you buy art, it's not. Yeah. And so if you if you buy it, art as a commodity, because this is what rich people do. They'll just buy a whole bunch of shit and then they'll just box it up and put it in a storage area somewhere. It's the same reason it, they invest in the stock market because then yep. they don't have to pay taxes on the, the capital exactly, gains. Exactly, right? Exactly. <laughs> they don't have to pay capital gains taxes. But but the thing is is like this is the other problem that she that Davis doesn't bring up in the book, but I think is an important distinction is that like the way that these wages would be paid if they were paid through a government program, they would be paid by sales taxes. Yeah. And that would disproportionately harm the poor because essentially whatever you're paying them is them paying themselves. Like the real way to to, yeah. to do a UBI is to take the money from the fucking rich yep. and make them pay their fucking fair share of taxes and not and you know like the a UBI should not be paid for with sales taxes a UBI should be paid for with income uh, or or through stocks wealth and, taxes and, or and wealth capital taxes. gains taxes capital <laughs> gains taxes the increase of the of the federal income tax this is how those kinds of things should be paid yep. for because that's why they're progressive because sales taxes are regressive they harm the poor. Um, so, and again, like Davis gets to, like, it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, which is exploitation. Yeah. Like exploitation is exploitation, regardless of whether you call it housework or not. And whether or not you give it a wage doesn't make it any better or worse. It just, it just reinforces the fact that it is exploitation. Yeah. It's not particularly like forward thinking or progressive to say, 
oh, all of this drudgery, well, let's just give you a wage for it. Like, no, actually, let's build a society where people share in the responsibility of all of this, right? Yeah. Like where, 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 you know, we do a few hours of like a day job and then we come home and we do a few hours of work of, of around the house and then we do a few hours of doing whatever we want to do, right? And that men do it and women do it. That, and that's, know? and that's the thing too, right? Like, because we're devoting so much of our days to working time. Yes. Like, then we all almost don't have any time for housework. Like, and that's everybody. Like, I'm not and saying men about, or women. Yeah. Like, that's everybody. And, and think about the fact that in, in, the, in the late 1970s, like, the percentage of women in the workforce was like, I think it was like 54% or something like that. Today, it's like 69% of women are in the workforce. I think it's like 72 for men. Right. right. So 69% of all eligible female workers are working, which means that not only are they holding down a full-time or part-time job, but they're doing all that and they're raising a family, they're doing housework, so on and so forth, right? Yeah. And, you know, and so it's, it's, it is like two jobs and people say, we well, should be paid for that. And it's like, well, that would be great. But again, it just doesn't get to the heart of the problem, which is that, you know, this stuff is stuff that should be done collectively, socially. Yeah, that's right. Because if you pay somebody a wage for this, like, yeah, it will, might help them. But what would better off, what would be better for them is some kind of form of universal basic um, services. I don't like the idea of UBI. I like the idea of UBS. So that includes direct cash payments, mm-hmm. but it also includes, uh, you know, uh, universal public health care. It includes universal public preschool and daycare. It includes universal like public um, goods. So like instead of having to pay out the ass for diapers, you can go in and get them from a commissary and you don't have to pay for them. Yep. Like there's something that we offer to each other because the capitalism is it has this deep contradiction within it within it which is that it's an era of abundance we have more stuff now than we've ever had and yet things are scarce people <laughs> starve people don't have clothes people don't have homes mm-hmm. it's built into the system because you need to force scarcity yep. because if you if you make things abundant they're no longer profitable and colla- and capitalism collapses on itself yeah. This is what Marx and Engels meant when they said, like, capitalism creates its own grave diggers. It's true. Because all of the systems of production eventually lead themselves to the socialization of, of, of everything. Um, you know, that's what we talked about when we talked about Engels' um, socialism, utopian and scientific. Right. Where he talked about how, you know, once you get to a place of abundance in industrial production, then you can build a society where people's needs are met and you don't have to – build things upon the profit motive, you build them upon what people need. And if we really do that, that's truly revolutionary. That's truly building a better system. Yeah. So that's what I would argue for is like, you know, why do we need to give them a wage? Why don't we give some kind of universal basic services that everybody can benefit from? And then, and then we will have, we'll be, we'll be much better off. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> so long story short like women racing class i think is essential reading um sounds like it for sure and and i think that it's incredibly important you know for those who don't know like i i I should have started the episode talking about who angela davis is um but (laughs) if you don't um, know (laughs) if you don't know who angela davis is like she's very 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 important so yeah Angela Davis is an activist. She's a scholar. You know, she worked, I think, at the University of California, Berkeley for a while before she was fired by Ronald Reagan. Um, She eventually worked, um, 
you know, and she taught, you know, she was, she received study in Germany. She was kind of an expert in Goethe, like, and so she was also a political prisoner. She was accused of, of assisting someone in a murder that she didn't have anything to do with. Um, and she was in prison for a couple of, you know, years during the trial where, you know, they, they were trying to make an example of her as a revolutionary leader because she was a part of the U.S. Communist Party. She yeah. had been loosely affiliated with the Black Panthers. And so, um, so yeah, eventually she does win her freedom. Um, she earns her freedom through, through fighting hard, um, with her lawyers and the legal team and, and making the argument like clearly she was innocent. And so now, you know, for the last, you know, 40, 50 years, she has been the sort of, um, voice of conscience for the sort of broader socialist left. And, uh, she's still around today. Um, and she just re-released a new edition of her autobiography through Haymarket Books, which I've picked cool. up. And it kind of goes into the details of her being a political prisoner. That's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, Angela Davis is amazing. Um, and I think that her voice is so unique in that she does – like I said, she does a really great job of synthesizing history and theory – and activism in a way that's very accessible and very, uh, but also very like erudite and scholarly. So um, definitely check out Women, Race, and Class. Um, you know, I think she also has a, a another book that's really, really great. Um, I, that's put out by Haymarket Books, and it's a collection of her speeches. Um, and, yeah, like that, uh, that. That's probably where people would mostly know her from is her various speeches. If, if yeah. you haven't read her yet. <laughs> yeah, her, the collection of, of of speeches that I've read of hers is called "Freedom is a Constant Struggle," and she talks about like the Black Lives Matter movement. She talks about the Justice for Palestine movement, and and she sort of connects these struggles. You know, whether it's the Black liberation struggle in America, the Palestinian struggle, um, and so on and so forth. So for sure, yeah. And so you can always check out her like interviews and stuff on and and speeches on YouTube or whatever, um, and and do. Actually, like I definitely got to recommend it. Absolutely. But, okay, I guess what are we covering next time? So next time is going to be a very special episode of Red Reviews. It's going to be the first episode where we have a guest. (laughs) And I'm very, very excited. So the next time we're going to be doing this book here. It's called Revolutionary Education, Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers. This is a book put out by um, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, which I am a member of. And uh, and so this book is about sort of the history and theory of Marxist pedagogy, like how we learn and how we can apply that to our organizing. And the editor of the book is Nino Brown. And Nino Brown also contributed a chapter in this book. And Nino will be our guest for that episode. And we cool. will spend you know, the hour or, whatever, or however much time we have with him discussing the book and its relevance, not just for um, the sort of Marxist-Leninist left, which I belong to, but the left in general. So that's going to be a really, really exciting one. Um, and then after that, I think we're going to be doing some anarchist theory. I think we're going to be doing two Kropotkin books. Very cool. And oh, and I wanted to mention while while I'm on the while I'm in the chat here that the one person who commented on are we going to do a book of Trotskyist theory? Oh, yep. The answer is yes. <laughs> Um, we will be doing um, a book called The Permanent Revolution and and uh, Results and Prospects. Um, we'll be doing that book later on in the year. But yes, we will be doing Trotsky's theory um, to kind of cover our bases. And I'm excited to kind of dip my toes into that. Awesome. So I guess, uh, where can people find you? 
Great. So um, they can find all my work at justinclark.org. Um, that is my website where I have all my professional work as well as the work I do on the side. My blog is there. Um, I have um, I have a new article out in the Truth Seeker magazine about the the humanist philosopher Paul Kurtz. You can also read that on my website. Um, and I also wrote an essay on Christopher Lash, which we talked about in a previous episode that's been published by uh, Midwestern Marks. So you can check that stuff out too. Um, you can also check me out on Instagram at Justin Clark PH. And now I'm also on TikTok. So you can find me on TikTok at Justin Clark PH. I figured I'd join in with the kids yep. and get on the TikTok and uh, try to do a little bit more education and agitation there. There's lots of good leftist content on TikTok. Definitely, definitely. I highly, I and and you know, and maybe they don't need another person in that. But what the hell, you know? Oh, um, they. Oh, there's always room for more. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, great. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, definitely check out that stuff. And um, also, if you're interested to learn more about my own particular political orientation, um, you can also check out the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, we are Marxist Leninist Party. Um, uh, that's an international party with branches in multiple cities in the country. And um, if you want to learn more about that, you just go to pslweb.org or you can check out like Liberation News or Liberation School to kind of learn a little bit more about uh, Marxist Leninist theory and kind of where we're coming from. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Justin. Thank you, Corey. This has been a whole lot of fun. That's all, folks. Thanks for watching or listening. Remember to share this show with your friends or on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical lefty. If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating or a and a review on the podcast app of your choice or on one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser or ratemypodcast.com would be great. If you want to find more from me, make sure to check out the show notes or check out my link tree. That's linktr.ee slash skeptical court. You can find all my social media stuff there, as well as links to my other show, From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics, and a project I'm involved in with my friend Damien Marie at Hope that's called Atheist Humanist Leftist Revolutionaries. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. You can email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. And if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone I should reach out to, then feel free to let me know. You can book interviews in my available time slots on my Calendly, which is also found in my link tree. Thanks so much for listening, and let's try to make sure we're applying critical thinking and reasoned skepticism when we're attacking the system. If we get caught up in bad thinking, we can derail ourselves.